Well, good morning, church. Grab your Bibles, if you would, please. If you don't have one, we can get you one. Just raise your hand. We'll bring one to you. I, I am the kind of guy, and we had a discussion with this this past week, that sometimes churches put the Scripture up on the screens, and that, that's all good. Um, one thing is, I like, I know I'm old school, I like hearing the Bible pages flip, but we live now in a new century where now we hear apps going, beep, you know, and they're finding their apps on, you know, your Bible on the phone. That's all good, okay? However you can find God's Word, turn to it, get there. Um, I, I like people just getting right in and digging into the, in their very own Bible. So we'll put the Scripture up on the screen for you um, and go from there. And uh, you can go ahead and, and you're going to turn to uh, the book of Galatians, actually. And we'll get there in a little bit. It's a small book in the New Testament. Get past Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans. You've got First and Second Corinthians, and there's a small book there. You're going to find them all, little letters, Galatians. Okay. While you're turning there, I want to thank our Wednesday night volunteers. We thank our graduates, and we've got actually a couple other people that are, that are here this morning, uh, and, and maybe that aren't here this morning, that have maybe uh, graduated from college, and, and, uh, or I know there's a lot of uh, students in here right now, they can't wait for the school year to be over, even though they're not graduating. Um, but this is the day when we do look at the youth, uh, and we look at the young people, and we've got things that we would like to challenge them with. But I want to say a special thanks to our Wednesday night workers, GPS, which are our children, and TUPAS, which is our youth, uh, for all the volunteers, for what you do in serving is incredible. Um, you get these kids that have been sitting in school all day long, being told, don't move, be quiet, don't move, be quiet, sit there, do your work. And they come home, get sort of juiced up on all the sugar, and then you send them here, Okay. And our youth leaders and youth workers have the awesome privilege of taking these kids that are bouncing off the wall and teaching them God's Word. And so it's a lot of work. And I know they're sitting there going, it's not my kid, so I can't discipline them. Please be, be yeah, okay, never mind. Um, so it's not an easy job sometimes. And so thank you, youth leaders and volunteers who care about the youth of our church so much that you volunteer to teach them God's Word, uh, to help them memorize Scripture, to tell them stories, to laugh with them, to have fun with them. We really do appreciate that. We really do. I saw a movie not too long ago. And in this movie, it's, it's one you've probably never heard before. It's called Wish for Christmas, I believe is the title. Wish for Christmas. And I actually watched it just a few weeks back. I know, it's May, and I'm already longing for Christmas, okay? But I'm not that kind of guy that plays the Christmas music in June, okay? Um, but I, I wanted to see this movie because I, I saw the description of the movie, and it sounded pretty interesting. So here's the storyline. There's this high school girl. She's very spoiled, okay? And her parents are strong Christians. They go to church together. Mom's in the choir. She's in the pew with her dad. As a matter of fact, she's in the pew texting her friends three pews back, during while the, you know, the pastor is preaching and, of course, gets the elbow, that kind of stuff. And um, so the family's very religious and she's excited about, you know, being a high school girl and the community dance. The winter dance is coming up at Christmas and it's, it's a community thing, not just a school. But she's on this committee that's going to help with the dance. And so she's fired up. She's excited because usually whoever presents the greatest idea and gets to do this committee, usually they get crowned queen, you know. High school girl wants to be queen. So 
she's all pumped about this, but then something happens and the dance is moved to Christmas Eve, which usually doesn't happen. But on Christmas Eve, it's also a church service, and so now she's got this conflict. Well, it's the Christmas Eve dance, and church is going on, so obviously I'm going to the dance, right, Mom and Dad? Mom and Dad are like, no, you're going to church. That's what we do. We go to church. You know, around their house, they got the nativity scene and verses. They get up in the morning. They read a devotional, and they pray together. They eat together, and it's just driving her nuts. The breaking point was when she told she couldn't go to the dance because she's going to church. And so it's at that point in time, she goes up to her bed, and she lays down in bed, and she just wishes her mom and dad did not love God. I wish my mom and dad never loved God. She wakes up the next morning. She got her wish. Her mom and dad never loved God, never went to church, didn't want to go to church anymore. It just sort of started that night. Everything else around her was the same. But all of a sudden, her mom and dad like, well, why would we go to church? We're not going to pray together. Just get your own breakfast and get off of school. And, and she thinks this is awesome because her mom and dad's giving her money. Yeah, just go, go to Starbucks, get your own stuff. And, and she's like, wow, this is great. And they're like, yeah, you can go to the dance. Why wouldn't you go to dance? Don't worry about church. Really? Matter of fact, mom took her shopping one Sunday morning. Instead of going to church, they went shopping so she can get a, a dress that was very unfitting on her. And she was loving it. But then she saw how her parents started to treat people in a very unloving way, a very ungodly way. And as the movie progressed, it went from, this is awesome that my parents don't love God, to this is the most worst thing in my life. It's a pretty incredible movie. I'm going to tell you right now, there's a bunch of cliches, Christian sayings in it. So for those of you that are deep theologians watching this movie, you're just going to rip it apart. Stop it, okay? Just enjoy the movie. It's not exactly the highest budget. Matter of fact, you're going to look at the dad. I could not keep looking at the dad because his eyebrows were painted. I was like, why did they do that? Okay? So I even had to overlook a few things. And anyway. But the movie, the, the, the whole underlying thought to this movie and what it was presenting really hit me. Because... What if your parents didn't know God? For some of you high school students and junior high students in here, sometimes, you know, and again, I knew how I grew up and what church I grew up, but have you ever thought, it's like, man, we always got to go to church or church this or we got to pray, we got to do this, and maybe you've ever, maybe even sort of shared that thought as hers, like, man, I wish we didn't have to do this all the time. Are you sure you want to wish that? Maybe some of you in here grew up and your parents didn't know God. And you long for it. You wish they did. And you can't assume that all parents know Jesus as their Savior. You can't assume that everybody in this room knows Jesus as their Savior. We just can't assume that. right? But the way God created the family structure, when you open up the Bible and start in Genesis at the very beginning, the family structure was created to worship and to love God. Parents were uh, ordered to teach and raise their children. Matter of fact, some of the scriptures are put up on the screen. And I think I've got it going here. Here we go. The scriptures on the screen starts in Deuteronomy chapter 11, verses 19 to 21. Let me read this to you. I'll read all three of these scriptures to you. In Deuteronomy, it says this, teach them to your children, referring to godly principles. Teach these godly principles to your children. Talk about them when you're at home. When you're on the road, when you're going to bed, when you get up, write them on the doorpost on your house and on your gates, that as long as the sky remains above the earth, you and your children may flourish in the land the Lord swore to your ancestors. 
right away, God's talking to Moses and his people saying, listen, parents, you've got a responsibility. Teach your children God's word. Everywhere you go, mention it. Bring it up. Joshua chapter 4, verses 20 to 24. A year ago, we had a sermon on Joshua, one of my favorites. And this is right after they crossed the Jordan River. It says this, there at Gilgal, that Joshua piled up 12 stones taken from the Jordan River. Remember when we dedicated this building, we had 12 bricks sort of symbolizing a similar thing. Joshua said to the Israelites, in the future, your children are going to ask, what do these stones mean? Then you can tell them, this is where we crossed the Jordan River on dry ground. We didn't take a boat across. There was no bridge. God parted the waters. We went across on dry ground. Isn't that amazing what God could do? That's the stories we get to tell our children. That's what Joshua was saying. That's what God was saying. He went on to say this. For the Lord your God dried up the river right before your eyes. He kept it dry until you were all crossed. Just as he did with the Red Sea when he dried that up and we all crossed over. He did this so all nations on the earth might know that the Lord's hand is powerful. And that you might fear the Lord your God forever. Joshua was saying this to all the people. Listen, parents. These stones represent something, and I want you to talk about them. So whenever these little kids come running along, hey, what are those stones all about? Let me tell you about our most powerful God, a God who loves you, a God who saves us and delivers us. What an awesome thing to do. Some of you have symbolism maybe around your house, whether it's um, a sign, a placard of some form, maybe a statue or something, just something that sits there, a candle that maybe reminds you. Years ago, we had stones. We had ever a year ago, we had stones. We had you write on that stone a word. I've got one of those still sitting in my dresser to remind me that God is a God that heals people. Reminded me of my sister-in-law. We have these reminders of how powerful, how awesome, how loving God is. Proverbs 22.6 says this, Direct your children onto the right path. And when they're older, they will not leave it. You've probably heard of the King James Version. Train up your child, right? Train them up. Direct them. But the question is, are we? Parents, grandparents, are we? Are we training up our children? Are we directing them onto the right path to be godly, to fear God? I mean, there's endless truths in the Bible. I mean, you sit down and think, okay, I'm going to teach all this to my kids. (laughs) That's a lot, right? So where do we start? Where do we start with ourselves if we've never been trained up? What do we do? I'm going to give you four real quick. And I mean, I I think these would be probably some of my favorites, okay? The gospel truth. If you're going to teach your children anything, start here. Let them know that there's a God that loves them and wants to have a relationship with them. Make sure your kids know that sin separates us from God, though. Even though he wants to have this loving relationship, sin separates us from that. But praise God that he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die, to conquer sin, to conquer death, to give us a bridge to have that relationship with God. And then that fourth point is our faith. We can place our faith in God and have new life in him. You want to know where to start with teaching your children? Start with the gospel right here. This is what they need to know. And then from there... There are other incredible, solid truths throughout the Scripture. And we need to learn them. It's like, well, I'm not even sure where to start after that. Just start. Just start. Months ago, I was studying a passage in the Bible, and it stuck with me. 
I mean, it stuck with me. And I kept coming back to it. It's like, what am I supposed to do with this, God? And I'm going to preach that scripture to you this morning because I feel that's what God wanted me to do is to share it with you. And so we're going to look at this book with some very practical things that Paul taught in the book of Galatians. And parents, these are the things we can teach our children and remind them. And young people, kids, these are things you need to know today. So for all of us, it's a learning opportunity for God to sit there and say, listen, I want you to know something of incredible value. So with, turn with me now book to the uh, book of Galatians, chapter 6. And in Galatians chapter 6, starting in verse 1. And I'll be reading from a New Living Translation. Okay. Dear brothers and sisters, if another believer is overcome by some kind of sin... You who are godly should gently and humbly help that person back onto the right path. Be careful not to fall into the same same temptations yourself. Share each other's burdens. And in this way, we obey the law of Christ. If you think that you're too important to help somebody, you're only fooling yourself. You are not that important. Verse 4. Pay careful attention to your own work. For then you'll get the satisfaction of a job well done. And you won't need to compare yourself to anybody else. For we are each responsible for our own conduct. Verse 6. Those who taught the word of God should, be provided, should provide their teachers sharing all good things with them. Don't be misled. You cannot mock the justice of God. You will always harvest what you plant. Those who live only to satisfy their own sinful nature will harvest decay and death from that sinful nature. But those who live to please the Spirit will harvest everlasting life from the Spirit. So let's not get tired of doing what's good. At just the right time, we will reap a harvest of blessing if we don't give up. Therefore, whenever we have the opportunity, we should do good to everyone, especially to those in the family of faith. Now, out of this scripture, there's four things I want to convey to you this morning. I want to challenge you with. I want to teach you. And hopefully, this is something we can continue to teach our kids. Because these are the things that our kids need to know. These are the things we need to know. I'll give them to, to you real quick. I'm going to say all four of them, but then we'll hit one at a time. Okay, here's the first thing. Is that we need to be a help to others. We need to be responsible and work hard. We need to be thankful. And we need to be a planter of good seeds. I told you I was going to give you all four, and if you try to write them down, forget it. It's not going to work. So let's just start with the first one, okay? We need to be a help to others. Let's look at through verses 1 to 3. Let's read that again. Dear brothers and sisters, if another believer is overcome by some sin, they've been overtaken, they've tripped up, right? You who are godly should gently and humbly help that person back onto the right path. Be careful not to fall into the same temptation yourself. Share each other's burdens. In this way, obey the law of Christ. If you think you're too important to help someone, you're only fooling yourself, you're not that important. Look at the person next to you and tell them, help others. Now look at another person tell them, help others. And if you're still being a little, um, I don't know, rebellious and not looking at anybody, everybody do it again. Look at somebody and say, help others. That just drives some of you nuts. I love doing that. I don't want to. I know. Listen, Paul recognized that among the Christians, especially those in Galatia, there are a lot of people being overcome by sin. 
Okay? And now, and this was a deviation from doing the right thing. Okay? This, they knew the path to take. They knew the right things to do, but they deviated from it maybe just a little bit. And for those of you who know that if you are making lines, and maybe as an architect or something in which you've got to be pinpoint straight on or even laying a foundation on a building, if you get off at the very beginning, just a quarter of an inch, an eighth of an inch, if you continue, you know that the further along you go, the farther apart you get from where you needed to be. And suddenly there's a big gap. And these people, they've been sinning. They've been overcome by sin. They've made a mistake. The problem is, their sin just started taking them further and further away from God. One theologian said this, This isn't somebody who may be described as determined or a hard sinner. Instead, the idea is somebody's fallen into sin. They find themselves trapped in a place they never thought they'd be. Have you ever made a mistake? You're like, how did I, how did I end up here? I mean, why did I ever do this? I know better. You ever, you ever been there? Okay. Am I the only one? I'm the only one. Okay. So it happens to me. Okay. I know it happens to all of us. We think about this. We've been going in the right direction spiritually in, in our lives. And suddenly just, we just, there's this sin. It just deviates. And we, and we, it's just a slight deviation from godliness. And whether it's intentional or unintentional, the thing is we sinned. We mess up. Everyone in this room, we mess up. We get off course. And all of a sudden, we have on this gradual decline pulled ourselves away from that relationship that we need to have with God. And for those of us that are perfect in the room, okay, you probably know somebody, a family member. Well, we all have a family member, right, that's messed up, right? Or a friend or a neighbor or a coworker. We know somebody that's in this boat right now. We know somebody in this church right now. Maybe we won't admit it about us, but we know eh, a guy two rows back, right? What do we do if we know somebody is taking a wrong turn? I mean, just yesterday, I'm sitting in the gas station, and my son could testify to this one. Somebody came through with a big camper and some stuff, and, and I'm sitting there, and I'm thinking, he's turning, and he's, he's not going to make it without taking out my front fender. And I just like quick put the gas thing in there and hopped in, started up, honked my horn, got out of there real quick. I'm thinking, had we not moved, his turn would have damaged me. And a little bit on his end. But isn't it amazing when we make wrong turns, it isn't just ourselves that we may provide damage to, it's going to be somebody else as well. It's not just our sin, our life, but our sin, our life affects others as well. And when that's happened, when somebody's overcome a sin that says they need to be restored, listen, Paul's saying, listen, you need to be restored, not ignored. You need to be restored, not excused. You need to be restored, not destroyed. The goal is always restoration. When we see people sin and mess up, a lot of times as Christians, we think, well, we're the, we're the sin police. We need to go chastise them. We need to go get them straight. We need to put them in their place, right? Or a lot of times in church... We know somebody's messing up. We know somebody's sinning big. And what do we do? I really don't want to talk about it. So we ignore it. We're like, yeah, I know they're struggling right now, but um, they'll deal with it. Because it's their life. Who are we to step into their life and tell them that they're messing up, right? That's a lot of times our default system in the church. The verb here in this word, in this, in this verse, this is very instructive, meaning to put in order. It's katartizo, Okay, is a Greek word 
But that word for restore was a word that was used, that doctors use for when there was a bone was fractured or a bone was dislocated. They would use, they would, that restoration means they would very carefully, very gently put it back into place. Okay, there was none of this, you know, those, those great action movies where a guy dislocates, dislocates his shoulder and he's like, let me, let me, right, and put it back into place. Okay, no, no, that's not what we're talking about. Elbows out of place, shoulders out of place. We're going to very gently put it back into where it needs to be. The job of restoration can sometimes be neglected in the church. Like I said, we, we pretend a sin doesn't exist or we act harshly towards it. And we're like, look how bad they're messing up. We sort of go to the extreme in the church. And what Paul's saying, listen, listen, let's, let's get the middle ground right here. If somebody is sinning in the church, if somebody is struggling, the burden is too strong for them and they cannot bear it anymore, you know what we need to do as a church body? Gently help that person. Help restore them back to who God wants them to be. Unfortunately, we'd rather gossip about that person or ignore that person. But Paul says restore that person. And do it in a spirit of gentleness with a full understanding that we have weakness too. We have corruption too. When I go to my brother my sister to pray with them because I know they're struggling with the sin, I know this, you know what? I could, I could trip up just as quick. And I am not perfect. And I've already messed up. So I know in my weakness, in my sin, as I'm talking with a brother or sister who is also struggling with sin, I come to them, not above them, cowering over, talking over them, or not below them, saying, oh, I'm so horrible, you're better. It's I'm coming right at them, face to face, brother to sister, brother to brother, sister to sister, saying this, you know what? I want to help you. Because I, I know I need help too. Church, you following me on this, what Paul's saying? When Paul brought the idea of one who's been overtaken in their sins, he painted this picture of a person that's basically under a heavy load. I mean, it's a crushing load. And he expands the idea to encourage every Christian to bear another person's burden. It's to see your brother or sister who's struggling with the sin, to look at them and, you know what, they're being crushed right now. The choice they made is crushing them. And as a Christian brother, I want to come along and help them with this burden, whether I can try to help them get underneath it. But here's the thing. We know only Christ can remove it, right? We're not the forgiver of sins. But we can help them find the one who forgives sins. So we come alongside them. And it's a simple command to obey. You know, you look for somebody with a burden, and you help them with it. It's not that complicated, right? It doesn't take a huge program or an infrastructure for a church to come along and say, okay, we've got to come up with a way to help people be forgiven of their sins and so forth and so on. And we need, a, we need you know, like storm chasers? Let's be sin chasers. Let's look for people who are sinning and chase them down and help them take the burden off. You know how full this church would be? Either we'd have a bunch of legalistic people sitting in here or we'd have nobody in here, right? Because we're all sinners, right? We'd be chasing each other all the time. You messed up. Well, so did you. Well, I know, but you messed up bigger than me. Would that be crazy? Wow. The focus isn't on expecting other people to bear your burdens either. Because that would be a self-focus. Which leads to pride and frustration, discouragement, depression. Here's the thing. If you've messed up and you know it, you don't wait for others to come tell you that you've messed up. Man, I'm really messing up right now. I wish somebody would apply Galatians 6, 1 and 2 to me. No, no, no. You already know this. So you get to God right now and you seek forgiveness. You don't need to wait for anybody to tell you to get it right with him. You know. But for those of us that have 
got this spiritual amnesia and we forget that we need the grace of God and help and forgiveness at that moment in time, we do need somebody to come along and help us through that burden. God always directs us to be other-focused, bear another burden. It says this is a simple command to obey, right? John Stott said this, Notice the assumption which lies behind the command, namely that we will all have burdens and that God does not mean for us to carry them alone. Did you hear that? Because when you read the scripture, there is sort of an assumption there that we're all going to have burdens. We're all going to need help carrying them. And as we bear each other's burdens, guess what we do? We fulfill the law that Jesus commanded in John chapter 13. John chapter 13, 34 to 35, Jesus said this, So now I'm giving you a new command to love each other. Just as I've loved you, you love each other. And your love for one another will prove to the world that you're my disciples. By the way we love each other, people look at you and say, there's something different about you. Yeah, I I love God. That's what it is. And because I love God, I'm looking out for my brothers and sisters. And if you're struggling, I want to help you. I want to help you with your burden. I want to help others. But here's the thing. What keeps us from helping others? Look at verse 3. It's our pride. Pride prevents us from helping other people. Well, you know, I'm I'm a pretty important person, so this probably doesn't include me. Yes, it does. Yes, it does. It's often pride that keeps us from ministering as the way as we should. Pride doesn't necessarily say, I'm better than you. Pride doesn't always come across that way. Pride just simply says, I'm more important than you are, so I deserve more of my own attention and love than you do. Instead, biblical humility tells us, I'm no more important than you are. Let me care about your burdens and your needs. Our pride can also do this. Our pride not only helps us from, keeps us from helping others, but it can keep others from helping us. And I think Steve and Joy mentioned this on, uh, when they shared their testimony. Out of pride... We can very easily look for somebody that comes to say they want to help us. And we're like, no, I don't need your help. I'm good. I'm, good. I'm, all, I'm all good. When we have that kind of pride and we don't let people bless us, guess what we've done? We've robbed that person the joy of serving God. My parents always told me this growing up because I had a hard time. When I first started pastoring, people were like, well, here's some cookies. Or, you know, here's an extra $20. I know you don't get paid much as a pastor. Or, or people just blessed us in one way or another. And I was like, no, I'm good. No, thanks. No, thanks. My mom and dad said, stop it. See, when you say no to people wanting to bless you, you're robbing them the joy of being a blessing of God. I never thought of that before. So church, if somebody ever reaches out to you and wants to bless you, be blessed. Be blessed. Don't rob the person that's given you that, the joy of being obedient to God. Learn to help others. Parents, teach your children to help others. We can do that by modeling it. As we see people we need to pray with, let's pray with them. Here's the second thing. Be responsible. Work hard. Galatians 6, 4-5 says this. Pay careful attention to your own work for those you will get the satisfaction, for then you'll get the satisfaction of a job well done. You won't need to compare yourself to anybody, for we're each responsible for our own conduct. So we sort of got the what, right? This is sort of the how. This is sort of an attitude thing. See, as you live and serve God, as we work, as we help others, who do we do it for? 
We do it for God. We do it unto God. For His glory, not ours. Whatever you do, it's for Him. We don't do it to compare ourselves to others, which is sort of what Paul's saying here, possibly. Pay care, careful attention to your own work. Not like, hey, look what I'm doing compared to look what they're doing. No, stop that. Look at what you're doing. Let's work on what you're doing. And work hard at it. Be responsible to the thing that God's given you to do in that moment. Sometimes it's very hard to do that because we want to compare ourselves to the work of what other people are doing. But we are responsible for our own conduct. As much as I would love to be the police of my boys and their conduct, they're responsible for their conduct as well. As a parent, I'm, I hope I'm praying, I'm teaching them and raising them in a godly way. But guess what? Their conduct is their conduct. Their work is their work. They're responsible for that. A lot of us like to pass the buck. Well, somebody else is responsible. No, you're responsible for what God has given you. You need to take care of that. You need to do that. When you look at this, and you think about God, uh, what Paul is saying, we're responsible for what God's given us and what he's been given us to do. So we ought to do it. But there's a difference here in the word that Paul uses. It says the word for burden or load in Galatians 5. That was basically like a backpack, okay? It was a common term for a man's backpack. The, the burden in Galatians 6.2 was a different word, meaning a heavy burden in which you couldn't carry on your back by yourself. In the end, I'm responsible for the work that God's given me, my backpack. Does that make sense? But when I look at a brother who's got 20 backpacks and is being weighed down by the burdens of life, I can go to him and help him. Going back to that first command to help others. Here's the third thing. To be thankful. If we can get that up there. We'll let you guys take it from there. Third thing is to be thankful. Look at verse 6. Those who taught the word of God should provide for their teachers, sharing all good things with them. Now, in the context of this scripture that we're reading right now, this is for caring for one another. Paul instructs those who are taught to support those who are doing the teaching. For those who have done the good thing for them, to bless them back. Now, there's a reason why we're raised, you think about this, to take our teachers a gift on the first day of school, maybe the last day of school, right? There's a reason why at the end of the season we thank our coaches and we're our dance instructors and we give them something at the end of that, that time period. And there's somebody decided to have a pastor's appreciation month thinking, well, the pastors need to be thanked too. So they came up with that. I'm going to have to admit that verses like this are important, yet they are the most awkward thing to preach. Okay? Because it sounds as if I'm saying, hey, you know what? Who's doing the teaching around here? You're supposed to bless them. Okay? How, you want know how hard it is to preach this, this verse right here? Matter of fact, Martin Luther said this. These passages are all meant to benefit us ministers. I must say, I do not find much pleasure in explaining these verses. I'm made to appear as if I'm speaking for my own benefit. And I look at Martin Luther and I would have said, Amen, brother, keep preaching. Right? But see, the right relationship between the teacher and the student or the minister and the congregation is one of koinonia, of fellowship. Paul writes, let him who is taught the word share, and there's a form of koinonia using that word share, all good things with him who teaches. Stott, another pastor, said this, it isn't payment, it's sharing. 
It's a basic, though sometimes neglected, spiritual principle. Those who feed and bless you spiritually should be supported by you. Says Stott. Well, why is that? Well, because when somebody does something for you, you tell them what? Thank you. You thank them. And thank you can be done with finances. Thanks can be done with gifts. Thanks can be done with a hug. Thanks can be done verbally. You can thank people in a multitude of ways. Martin Luther Luther said this, I've often wondered why all the apostles reiterated this request, request with such embarrassing frequency. We've come to an understanding why it's so necessary to repeat the admonition of this verse when Satan cannot suppress the preaching of the gospel by force, he tries to accomplish his purpose by striking the ministers of the gospel with poverty. You don't want to know why churches shut down and why pastors stop preaching? I'll give you two of the main reasons why. One, lack of funds. Two, sin. That's when they shut down. It isn't like, well, we just sort of decided to stop. Either the church couldn't afford to run a church anymore because they weren't giving or because the pastor had fallen into some major sin and people left. Those are two of the major reasons why those churches struggle. So I want to apply this scripture, this portion here to daily living and saying this, are we teaching our children to thank their teachers? Not just at church, but at school. Their coaches, their dance instructors, their, their music teachers. Or have we become so critical of those who are teaching that our kids look at those in authority in a negative way to disrespect those in authority. I'm telling you, it's challenging because as a coach, as a pastor, as a teacher, as a speaker, when I see somebody else speak, teach, coach, whatever, you know what happens? It's very easy to become critical. I could look at that coach. I would have never done that. I can't believe that coach is doing that. Why would that coach do that? Oh, why is he preaching that style? I would never preach that style. It's easy to become critical of others in those positions of authority, isn't it? Paul says in Romans 13, everyone must submit to governing authorities. All authority comes from God. Those in positions of authority have been placed there by God. So anyone who rebels against authority is rebelling against what God has instituted, for they'll be punished. I'm sitting there going, when have I rebelled against authority? Have I looked at somebody in authority and really badmouthed them or criticized them or complained about them? I have to step back to the scripture and let God deal with me on this saying, Rex, I put them in authority. Respect them. Because when you disrespect that authority, you're disrespecting me who's placed them in authority. Oof. Ephesians 6, 1 to 3, Children, obey your parents because you belong to the Lord. That's the right thing to do. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise. If you honor your father and mother, things will go well with you. You'll have a long life on earth. Paul comes around and says, Hey, kids, you're supposed to be honoring your parents. Obeying your parents. Your parents shouldn't have to say, Hey, one more time. By the count of three, there shouldn't have to be a count of three. There shouldn't have to be one more time. But parents, we're all guilty of that. Can I tell you? We are, we've learned to manipulate and to reward our kids for not being obedient. Right? I'm going to give you this if you do it. Why do we have to reward our kids for being disobedient? But we do. Because again, I want to come back to what I said last week. If Satan can destroy the family of the, of the structure of the family, Satan wins, we lose. So if he can create tension at home with the kids and with parents, he wins. If he can whisper into the ears of our children and say, hey, you don't need to listen to your parents. Your friends, 
Do you see how their parents are? Your parents are idiots. He can whisper that into your ears, and we believe it. Just watch the Disney Channel sometime. Every parent is a buffoon on that station, okay? Think about it. Every Disney Channel story, the kids, their parents are clueless. And you wonder why as our kids are growing up, why they maybe look at authority figures in a weird way. Because if they're watching those channels all the time, all they see are these parents who have no clue what's going on, they're off somewhere else. That was a rabbit trail. I did not need to go down. Okay. All right. Pastor David always amens that. He does not, he fully agrees with that. Okay. Number four, be a planter of good seeds. Look at verse seven of Galatians chapter six with me, please. Don't be misled. You cannot mock the justice of God. You will always harvest what you plant. Those who live only to satisfy their own sinful nature will harvest decay and death from the sinful nature. But those who live to please the Spirit will harvest everlasting life from the Spirit. I love this. Paul continues on this subject, but understand, this biblical principle extends, uh, goes way beyond the current topic that Paul's talking about here. Because Paul reminds us that those who are hesitant to share in the good things with those who teach them God's Word, that principle of sowing and reaping is going to come back to them. Their giving, which means to share in all those good things with those who are teaching them, isn't like throwing away money. It's planting seeds. And wherever a man sows, he reaps. When you give to a ministry, you are sowing. You are investing. There will be a reaping. When you are thankful and you give back to that person you're thankful for, and you show thankfulness, you are sowing gratitude into that person, and there will be a reaping. Step outside the Bible. Step into maybe the garden or into a farmer's field. Okay? And just sort of picture possibly what this looks like. A farmer reaps the same thing he sows. If he plants wheat, then guess what's going to come up? Wheat. If he plants corn, guess what's going to come up? Corn. Let's continue this. If he plants potatoes, what's coming up, church? Potatoes. Awesome. Okay, it's a very simple thing. Whatever you sow, you reap. Whatever you plant, you will harvest, okay? If we sow this, if we sow to the flesh and to sin, guess what the results are? Sinful results. Okay? The farmer reaps the same as he sows, but not exactly, because here's the thing. He takes an apple seed, he plants an apple seed. But guess what he gets? He doesn't just get more apples, he gets apples that are filled with more seeds. Opportunity for something to become even better, right? Even so, when we sow the Spirit, when we sow the Spirit spiritually, what we reap is not necessarily material things, but something better of the Spirit. So we don't give into the blessings box as an investment or a money-making scheme, we are completely confident that we are never the loser when we give to ministry, when we give to God's work. As an example, they're in planting and sowing, or sowing and reaping. The farmer also reaps more if he has sown more. The relationship between what he sows and what he reaps is exponential. It grows. But again, this principle is application beyond giving and supporting ministers. It has a general application in life. What we get out of it, we put into it. You hear people talk about karma all the time, right? Paul's not promoting some kind of spiritual karma here. If that was the case, if we get what we deserve, we'd all be dead. None of us would be in this room right now if that karma thing was real. We may fool ourselves by expecting much when we sow little. We think, you know, I'm just going to sow a little bit and God's going to bless me big. Let me know. You sow little, you get little. 
applied again to the fields, to a garden. If you're teaching your children godly things, guess what, parents? They will learn godly things. They will learn to be godly. If you are neglecting teaching your children godly things, then guess what? They're learning the worldly things. Because when you aren't teaching, their friends are. Their TV is. Their social media is. Their school is. Everything around them is. Parents, you get so much time with your kids. If you're not sowing godliness into them, they're getting the world just plastered into them. Why are youth activities so important? Why is church so important? Because one hour out of the week, you get to bring them here to hopefully get planted godliness into them. Outside of that, I hope you're doing it as well. I really do. God's word is being sown here. And when we choose not to teach, when we choose not to sow, do not be surprised by a weak harvest. Can't tell you how many times I've had people come to me. I can't believe my kids are acting like this. Well, let me ask you. What have you been sowing into them? Well, we haven't been able to do this or that. and We don't do this and do that. It's like, well, then don't be surprised. If you don't sow godliness into them, don't expect godliness out of them. Paul makes it really clear here. In teaching and parenting and coaching, instructing a tough thing, it is tough, isn't it? Parenting is tough. But it should be enjoyable. It should be enjoyable. Sometimes it's hard, but be patient. Be patient. Look at verse 9 and 10. Let's wrap this up. So let's not get tired of doing what's good. At just the right time, we'll reap a harvest of blessing if we don't give up. Therefore, whenever we have the opportunity, we should do good to everyone, especially those in the family of faith. As we wisely manage all that God's given us, okay? Under that principle of sowing and reaping, we need patience. We need to do things that are right, in a world that's inevitably going to tempt us to do wrong. Circumstance may rise to tempt us to say, give up, it's not worth what you're doing, don't worry about teaching this, but you know what? What are we told here? Don't give up. Keep doing. Keep doing. The word for doing is ongoing. It's uninterrupted action. It's not just a one-time event. Well, I taught them that one time. You've got to keep teaching them and keep teaching them and keep teaching them. You know, Paul sort of wraps this up, and he says like this. You can sort of picture like this. He, he looks, maybe walk into a congregation like this today, and he would say this. There's hurting people all around us. There, there might be somebody sitting to you today that's carrying a heavy burden, a burden too heavy for them to carry. They can't carry it anymore. Help them. Restore them. And as you serve God helping others, use the gifts that God's given you and work hard with that. It's your responsibility. And be thankful for those who have taught you. For those who lead you. Show them thanks. Listen, you can't fool God. You can't fool God. What you sow is what you reap. So sow godliness. And don't give up as you sow godliness. For at the proper time, you will see an incredible harvest. In the right season. Listen, we all plant seeds. I'd go into the garden with my mom. We'd plant potatoes and beans and corn. And we had a garden as big as this room, seriously. My dad would bring a tractor and pile it up, and we had a garden this big. Here's the thing. We'd do all the planting in one or two days. But you know when the harvest would come? Different times for different things. The corn did not, was not ready the same time as the beans were. And the potatoes were not ready the same time that the peas were. See, we can all be planting here today, but we may see different harvests happens at different times in our life. Do not give up just because somebody else's harvest came before your harvest. 
Don't give up. Worship team, would you please come forward as we close? Church, I want to challenge you something. I heard this incredible story this week. A five-year-old boy, five-year-old boy ran two blocks in the dark down to his grandparents' house because his parents were unconscious. This happened in Middletown, Ohio. You may have heard this story. The grandfather ran back to the house where this boy's parents were to find his stepdaughter and her husband overdosed on heroin. The police went to the house. They found a, the boy's three-month-old sister sitting in her car seat, strapped in, crying, while the two parents were unconscious, laying on the floor from overdose. The police said this, How can something so awesome, that five-year-old saving his parents, be so sad all at the same time? They're supposed to be the guardians. This should never happen. I couldn't believe when I read that. I did a little bit more digging, and, I, and I've read this. Experts are pointing to heroin and opioid epidemic over the last decade for the rising number of children orphaned and essentially abandoned by their parents. Listen to this. Across America, 2.7 million grandparents and other relatives are raising their grandchildren right now. Another 430,000 are in foster care according to the 2015 census. Exact figures correlating with the rise in heroin use, with the increase of drug abuse and that, they're believing that a lot of our kids today are abandoned and orphaned because of the sins of their parents. This should not be. A grandmother sat down with her grandson. Parents abandoned him in jail. Said this. As the grandparents described the absent mom and missing childhood, despite the best efforts, the tears began to fall down his cheeks. Sandra, the grandmother, and she kneeled down and she spoke softly to her grandson, put her arm around him and tried to coax away his pain. But no matter how much love the grandparents have for that child, the grandmother said this, there's always going to be a want and a need that they're not going to get from me that they need from their mom. Parents, Listen, we have a responsibility. Church, we have a responsibility. We need to help each other in our sin because none of us are perfect. We've got a God who loves us and forgives us of our sin, but sometimes we try to keep it to ourselves instead of confessing it to God, and it weighs us down. Let's learn to help each other. Let's teach our children how to help each other, to pray for each other. Let's understand that the work we have is our responsibility. Let's get at it. Church, I want to encourage you that as you plant the right things, you sow the godliness into your kids and into the, especially our teachers that are coming here volunteering, it's, it's going to bring a harvest. You may not see that harvest today. You may not see it next week, but there will be a harvest. Do not give up. Do not give up. Would you please stand with me? To the children, to the youth, I want to say this. As your parents are trying to raise you and train you, you may not like some of the discipline. You may not like some of the rules. Your parents love you. That's why they're training you up. They want to see you grow in a godly way. That's the best thing they can give you. Accept it. Even though it may not feel fun at times, accept it. Accept it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you're an awesome God.
Thank you, Lord, for this day. Thank you for the opportunity to come here to worship you. But God, thank you for truth. Thank you for Paul sharing us in Galatians about how we need to help others. God, thank you for the reminder that you've given us a work and it is our responsibility. We can't pass it off to somebody else. Thank you for reminding us to be thankful. Thank you for reminding us that what we sow is what we're going to reap. God, help us to be godly parents, grandparents. For those of us that maybe are no longer parenting, but maybe we volunteer and we serve in ways with the youth and children, help us, Lord, to be faithful in those areas of serving. God, if there's somebody in this room this morning that's like, man, I am that person that's overwhelmed with sin right now. I've got a burden so heavy. I can't get rid of it. Right now, God, we can confess that to you. So God, if there's somebody in this room right now that just needs to unload that burden, unload that sin, do it. Ask for forgiveness. You need to come forward and pray with me. Come forward and pray. You do it right where you're standing as well. But do it. God, we love you. We thank you for this day. God, bless these parents, bless these kids as they continue to strive to be godly and honor you. In thy name we pray. Amen.